Hello, and welcome to the third episode in our podcast series titled Seas of Opportunity, Navigating the Blue Economy. The series is a collaborative effort between Simmons and Simmons and the Marine Conservation Society to shed light on crucial issues surrounding our blue ecosystems and their sustainable future. My name is Camille Yankosquita, and I'm an ESG analyst here at Simmons and Simmons. Today, we're diving in with Mina Epps, who is the head of the ocean program at the International Union for Conservation of Nature, IUCN. Mina has over 20 years of experience in international environmental work, primarily in the marine field. With everything from fieldwork in Madagascar to policy work in Geneva, she brings a wealth of experience from previous roles, including at the Marine Stewardship Council, the UN Environmental Programme, the World Trade Organization, and the European Commission. In this episode, we'll be taking a step back and looking at the big picture, specifically what are some of the international frameworks and opportunities for collaboration when it comes to preserving our oceans and marine biodiversity. Thank you, Mina, for joining us. Before we go into the legal and policy conversation, I'm going to kick off by asking, if we were to take a temperature check on the state of our oceans today, what would that look like? What are some of the key areas of concern? Hi, well, thank you very much, Camille, for uh, having me on your show. It's really my pleasure to be here. And really funny that you start up with saying taking the temperature, because in 2023 was actually the hottest recorded year in history for the ocean. So I think that is also a clear warning. I mean, some people have heard about ocean warming. Um, We also heard about ocean acidification as the ocean absorbs a lot of the excess CO2, but making it more acidic. But also the ocean is becoming warmer, but also um, less oxygen. So in a sense, the ocean, the ocean is becoming, you know, more sour, breathless uh, and warmer. So I think the the last part is that uh, marine heat waves we're quite familiar with on land, but it also occurs in the ocean. And we've really seen a significant increase, both in intensity and frequency over the past 10 years. And they're expected to really grow. So what does this really mean? I mean, this has uh, extreme implications in terms of extreme weathers, Um, 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 you know, biodiversity loss, but also economic loss. So I think this is really an indication of where we are. We know that um, the main threat to the ocean is really, you know, overfishing and pollution and habitat loss. But with that is exacerbated by climate change. So you have this climate change driven multi-stressors, if you like, in our ocean, and it really compromises ocean health. Uh, and its resources, and ultimately us, because it's our support system. So we cannot survive and thrive if we don't have healthy oceans. So we know what we have to do. We have to, you know, (laughs) remove the threats, build resilience and enhance the recovery to restore oceans. For sure. Um, It's scary to hear. But of course, we have a lot of with all these challenges, we rely on our policymakers and our legal frameworks to help regulate our use and how we treat our oceans to give us a sense of kind of the current state of play on the solution side. And could you walk us through some of the existing legal frameworks and instruments impacting oceans at the international level? Sure. Um, a lot of people have heard refer to the ocean, well, the high seas, which is the areas beyond national jurisdiction, which is 64% of the ocean. Uh, They refer to as the wet wild west, which is not really the case because it's not lawless. Uh, There are about 19 governing bodies uh, over our ocean, but it's very fragmented and they have quite limited mandate and scope. 
um, and they don't particularly have um, you know, provisions for marine protection. They're about maybe six or so that actually do. So the first that comes to mind is that um, we have the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, um, although it didn't at its onset when it was established 40 plus years ago, didn't really have um, biodiversity protection, you know, at the heart of it, if you would say. It's more been on kind of prevention and regula regulatory. Um, but there are several international bodies, but also regional bodies. So maybe um, we're all very familiar with shipping, and which is heavily regulated by the IMO, the International Maritime Organization. Um, there's also different UN bodies. Um, and then it's quite interesting with the ocean because it's also kind of divided that what are the governance of the living resources? So that might be the regional fisheries management organizations. But then the seabed floor, um, uh, seabed is managed by the International Seabed Authority, uh, which will actually meet uh, in March again as they meet with the countries to discuss um, deep seabed mining. Um, and there we have had a growing uh, recognition and momentum, and there are several countries that actually back now uh, a moratorium on deep seabed mining until you have enough scientific information or you can really assure that it does not compromise the, the ocean health. Um, um, and so, so I guess the main thing is that there's no governing body that actually has a cross-sectorial um, mandate or act as a regulatory uh, authority in that sense. So, the main thing was the main, I would say, the biggest milestone in decades was actually the recently agreed um, High Seas Treaty or BBNJ, which stands for Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction. So the IUCN took part as an observer because we are a permanent observer to United Nations General Assembly and many multilateral environmental agreements. So there we were able to kind of draw on an expertise from our World Commission on Environmental Law, but also different other experts. So we actually could bring independent advice, whether legal or scientific, to those discussions and support uh, the different countries. So it was in the making for almost two decades. And in March last year, the actual text was finally agreed. I was there for what we call the, the UN sleepover and everybody was sleeping on the floors and in corridors and didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Um, and then later in June, it was adopted. And in, sign and the, and in September last year, it was open for um, signature by the different states. And on the first day, it had 68 signatures. Today, we have 87 signatures um, and two ratifications. So the first country to ratify was Palau, which we really applaud them for, and then followed by Chile. And we're hoping that many more will follow this year. Uh, we know it's a process. It takes time. The different states need to be guided on what are the necessary uh, next legal steps to take in order to ratify, and that um, varies from, from different states to states. Um, but in total, um, you would need 60 ratifications before it actually entered into force. And of course, we would like more than that because we want to have sufficient geographical representation. We really want it to be kind of a universal treaty, if you like. Yes, it was a. I remember that moment when the the treaty was text was agreed on. It really felt historic watching it, even it unfold was. online. Um, 
wonderful to hear kind of your first-hand kind of experience as well the UN sleepover yeah. it was um, very emotional <laughs> yeah I can imagine um as countries begin to ratify could you tell us kind of what impact we expect the treaty to have once it is in force I say that I mean the BBNJ treaty I mean is absolutely crucial because it not only is it to to demonstrate that multilateralism is still alive, it, it really also provides a, a platform to collaborate. So it clearly says that, you know, it's not there to undermine an existing, but really to um, strengthen existing instruments uh, and, and, and provide that. And what is actually in the treaty is that it has four main elements. Um, and the first one is really to be able to, it focus on area-based uh, management tools. So that includes um, establishment of marine protected areas. Um, the second element uh, refers to environmental impact assessment, but also strategic environmental impact assessment. So that will then provide, you know, international or global, you know, standards and, and, and a way to actually conduct environmental impact assessment to not just to regulate, but really to ensure those economic activities or human activities that occurs in the ocean does not have environmental, uh, cause environmental harm. The third um, pillar is focusing on marine genetic resources. And there is really about not only access to, but also uh, equitable benefit sharing um, of the marine genetic resources. And the fourth pillar is focusing on uh, capacity building and the transfer of marine technology. So those are the kind of four key things that the treaty um, wants in place, because at the moment, for example, we don't have, um, you know, international like mechanism for establishing marine protected areas in the high seas, for example. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, and it's it helpful to hear kind of the breadth of what the agreement encompasses. Um, specifically looking at the marine protected areas, um, the treaty essentially puts the ob obligation of the state's party to the treaty, so those who ratify, um, to kind of plan these, well, have these marine protected areas and, and create them. Could you unpack for us what marine protected areas really are and how they would function in practice beyond national jurisdiction? Yeah, I think it's most conservation tools. I mean, they start in the terrestrial realm, if you like. So IUCN have since decades now um, put a definition on protected areas um, and um, protected areas and have different categories. Uh, marine protected areas also follow some of these uh, international standards and guidelines. In fact, we have since 2018, I believe, um, the global standard, uh, it's called a green list standard, which is really kind of supposed to be awarding and incentivizing. And that really uh, looks at, um, you know, inclusive governance. So it's a bit modern, more modern. Um, and how do you actually measure uh, conservation outcomes? So marine protected area, in a sense, um, uh, there is a clear uh, IUCN definition, but just to be mindful that um, according to IUCN, we have different categories. So basically it is a designated area that's really set aside for the long-term conservation of um, resources. But again, we don't just talk about what counts, but it's also about who, who counts. So um, I think this is really, and at the moment, this is, 
we are we need to see more marine protected areas and the primary objective is biodiversity conservation so in that sense that the strict and highly protected marine biodiversity area that are enforced um, have the greatest conservation outcomes and of course there are other i mean a lot of these marine protected areas that can be have different zoning so a certain amount of activity can occur um, but if you are looking at other uh, effective conservation measures and um, they might have generate or they should generate conservation outcome but it's not the primary objective uh, it might be as a secondary but for biodiversity protection highly and strictly are the most effective ways Thank you. And and you had mentioned that a lot of these areas are generally terrestrial and, of course, within kind of terrestrial waters as well or, or ec exclusive economic zones where states might specifically have sovereignty and control over those areas. In this instance, we're talking about um, marine protected areas beyond national jurisdiction. Uh, because of this kind of collective obligation, are there concerns around enforcement and implementation of these areas in practice? I mean, of course, I mean, out of sight, out of mind, uh, this is very, I mean, we're already seeing a lot of struggle in terms of effective, you know, um, uh, comply measuring, you know, compliance and enforcement within terrestrial, uh, sorry, territorial waters. Um, so, of course, if you look at the high seas, but what, what are the different mechanisms? So, one state or a group of states could actually go and apply for marine protected areas to be established. Um, of course, in parallel, we have to set up, you know, the right institutional mechanism to go go ahead. And once um, the, let's say, the conference of parties come together at the first COP, um, there will be a lot of decisions that would be, have to be taken in relation to monitoring, control and surveillance. But I do think that um, be the use of modern technology. Um, so basically, using big data and artificial intelligence, we can and we have been able. I mean, there are things such as the Global Fishing Watch, and they've been very successful in monitoring trends, what activities that goes on in the ocean. But I think it's also that whole burden of proof. I mean, what do you do? And if it's not in real, real time, it is very difficult to kind of um, prosecute. But I think with the new and uh, new collaborate, for example, we are collaborating with the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence that provide the Skylight technology and are willing to provide that for free for any country who wants to establish a marine protected area in the high seas once that mechanism becomes uh, available as uh, or option. Uh, and I think this is really also a question of equity because we don't have enough coast guards or the uh, resources to effectively control um, the marine protected areas that we have in, in national waters. So with the new technology, I'm still quite hopeful. And I think it could also, um, if, if you provide the right training, uh, not only of the use of technology, but also, uh, you know, the analyst uh, to decode the, the machine learning, I think that will set us off on more equal terms. Yes. I mean, it's so interesting as well that you brought up equity there. Um, of course, the concept of ocean justice and ocean equity is kind of an integral theme 
um, when thinking about international frameworks and international law. We've seen, um, in particular, small island developing states and indigenous communities be at the front lines of climate impacts and impacts of ocean degradation and unsustainable ocean activity. And these groups have been some, some of the most passionate and powerful advocates when particip participating at the Conference of Parties or other global forums. Um, how do we ensure equitable participation and representation of all stakeholders when we're kind of creating these international instruments, particularly on marine conservation efforts? I think that's an excellent question and, and super important. Um, you know, every all the stakes, stakeholders or rights holders have to have a seat at the table. And I think especially when you talk about this international negotiation that actually are related to um, the global commons uh, in terms of the areas beyond national jurisdictions are actually common heritage of humankind. So it belongs to you, it belongs to me, it belongs to everybody. Um, and I think that, you know, you need to have that representation. And I would say that in order, that means that you will have to have that kind of diversity, equity and inclusion on the various delegations. So you have country delegations and, you know, there could be but maybe even, for example, the UNFCCC can encourage or even demand that there is a good representation, especially countries that have different uh, ethnical group, etc., but also to make sure that it's intergenerational so that we can also start having younger people joining and learning, which will be our, you know, our future leaders, although some are doing a great job in, in leading now. Um, at the moment, what we've done is like we, um, but IUCN, for example, we're only an observer. So the best thing would be that each country delegation has that uh, inclusive and diversity within their uh, delegations that are part of negotiation. Thank you. Um, a final final question as we're coming towards the end of the, the recording. Um, we want to ask all of our guests on the podcast what seeds of progress we can plant. We know that policy and law can be slow and incremental instruments for change. Is there anything you could recommend for listeners to get involved with or stay engaged on in the marine conservation and advocacy space? Well, I think, you know, as the saying always goes, I mean, nobody can do everything, but, you know, everybody can do something, uh, even on an individual level. And I think the first thing would be obviously to stay informed. Um, there are lots of really great campaigns uh, and you can see things evolving. For example, I believe that on deep seabed mining, if you go back five years ago, it, it wasn't even considered an issue by the, the general public. And now you're seeing it in mainstream media. So I think that everybody has a, a role to play, especially as we all have a stake in it, uh, whether it is, you know, engaging yourself in your local politics and what goes on. But I think that, well, firstly, see what you can do within your own uh for example, whether you're a singer or, you know, interpretive dancing or you're an artist um, or you're good with numbers. I mean, whatever it is, there is something that you can uh, choose to do that. If you are making uh, films, I mean, there's also to have that or, you know, songwriter, whatever. So I think that, the, you know, whatever our profession is, we can certainly embed a bit of ocean uh, ocean in there and you know just use your own voice and of course you are in charge of your own choices whether what you eat what you wear um so and what you engaging so you know staying informed thank you i hope that people do take up that baton and, and we see some interpretive dance advocacy that would be very <laughs> exciting um 
Thank you so much, Mina, for joining us and for your great work. And, and thank you to the IUCN team um, for everything that you're doing. Um, for all those looking who are listening, looking to learn more about the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction Agreement or any other ocean-related topics, the IUCN has, webpage has some great resources that are available to anyone. Um, thank you all for tuning into this podcast. Um, join us on continuing the blue voyage on the seas of opportunity navigating the blue economy with our next episode taking place at the World Ocean Summit in Lisbon next month. Thank you.